0: According to engagement consulting experts Gallup, female managers are more likely to be engaged than male managers, and individuals who work for a female manager are also six percentage points more engaged on average than those who work for a male manager. My name is Stephen Norton, and you are very welcome to the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast episode 17. Thank you for joining us as we explore the world of work and leadership from a variety of different industries. This podcast seeks to entertain, educate, and hopefully change some behavior to make working life better for all. Some people believe that leaders are born and others believe that leaders are made. My guest this month is a great example of leadership nurtured at an early age and then forged in adversity throughout her career. She is a magazine mogul, author, philanthropist and broadcaster but most of you will be familiar with Nora Casey as a dragon on the Dragon's Den TV show where she dished out advice and investment to aspiring entrepreneurs. She seemed to appear on Irish TV screens out of nowhere and soon became an example to all as a strong Irish female leader. After listening to this podcast you'll see that that label is too one-dimensional to describe the powerhouse that is Nora Casey. Nora has a fascinating story to tell about her leadership developed from the kitchen table and led to the boardroom table, all the while facing many challenges and tragedies in her life. Her knowledge and charisma are mesmerising, so I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Nora Casey, you're very welcome to the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I, uh, As I was researching this interview, what struck me about you was that you have this extraordinary life story, but in... in in loads of ways you're just so ordinary and relatable and normal it's it's kind of infuriating because you're kind of going how did she do all that and she's just like everybody else but it's 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 all this normal life but then all these achievements that that are, are are beside you the whole way through your life and I always wonder how you know Ordinary people do extraordinary things and and how much of it is nature and nurture and environment. And your environment was very different when you were growing up because you grew up in the Phoenix Park. Ireland's biggest garden was your playground.
1: Absolutely. And I think um, you only fully appreciate those kind of things later in life because I thought... Uh, Nothing of the fact that I had this huge back garden and I was living um, out of the city in the city. My father and my grandfather were rangers in the park, so my mother would murder me and then you for saying this, but she's the oldest living resident there. Wow. There were eight of us in a three-bed house, not to do Angela's Ashes on it. But (laughs) I think one of the great things, my, my father used to open the door in the morning. You know, he'd open the gates at the North Circular Road. He was often on duty around the park. And we just ran like wild things, you know, feral all over the park, knew every inch of it. And when it came to dusk, he rang a bell. Um, outside the people's gardens to close it and we knew that was our time to kind of go home you know in many ways I kind of grew up in Dublin Zoo because my mother would tell you that um, from a toddler onwards I was playing with baby animals and eventually worked there summers um, I don't know evenings early mornings Saturday Sundays when I left school first I actually raised two baby gorillas there um, wow. Yinka and Gory, and so The second love of my life was animals and the added advantage of them not talking back, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of grounding did that give you? I mean, obviously quite independent from an early age then.
1: Yeah, very independent. My, my, f- I always say I was raised by a feminist, and my mother was great too. Um, but I had an incredible dad, and you know his father fought at Boland's Mill, and he ended up actually with that lodge because of the difficult things that he went through, taking up arms at seventeen. And I think that wow. defined much of our life. My father taught us as uh, some incredible values at the kitchen table number one respect all other humans it stood to me the whole of my life um don't judge people always say thank you but he also loved current affairs and politics and he was never happier than when he got all the casey children um he would call it debating. Uh, you couldn't actually hear anything above the shouting of us uh, roaring about Northern Ireland and anything else that was the topic of the day. He collected cuttings from the newspaper, left piles of them for each of us, uh, mm. regardless as to what stage in our life we were at. So, although we were half-bred um, out there, running wild in the park and climbing trees and doing all that sort of stuff, at home we lived, you know, a really good life of books. Um, engagement, conversation, debate, discussion. But, you know, I've often spoken about culture and values and they were laid down at the kitchen table in the Casey household, definitely.
0: Yeah, wow. And and, and it gives you such a good grounding. And and then, you know, what people don't know about you, you know, they know you're the magazine mogul, you're the Dragon's Den guru, but... Actually, that's, you know, that wasn't a, a straight path that you took from the Casey Kitchen table to, to Magazine Guru. You actually went off to Scotland and became a nurse first. Uh,
1: yeah, I come from a long line of nurses. My mother was a nurse. She was a, a psychiatric nurse and lots of cousins and aunts and uncles, in fact, were nurses and it's not that I had any inkling in my head that I wanted to be a nurse. It was more that I wanted to get out of the house. I, I was really, you know, itching for a little bit of an adventure. And Scotland seemed a little bit like Ireland. Luckily for me, um, the woman so that... Everybody in the Phoenix Park knows these that We're all like a family, all the lodges. So uh, there was a man at the Park Lodge down in uh, the main road at Parkgate Street. And his daughter had married and fallen in love with a policeman in Scotland. And she was working in a hospital in um, Loch Lomond called the Vale of Leaven. And she came home and gave a brochure to my dad and said, you know, maybe young Nora might like to do that. Mm. Um, and I just saw Scotland and a trip on an aeroplane first in my life. Yeah. and uh, yeah went over for the interview and uh, I was only 17 at the time I was um, I'm an August child so I was in school um, my mother couldn't wait to get rid of us uh, just having turned four so I actually without we didn't have transition year so I actually you know I came out after my leaving started at 16 so you know was hanging around Dublin Zoo raising gorillas and thinking I would go to college in the autumn but ended up going to Lomond in the autumn yeah
0: but but you didn't last. You you, you you obviously studied, became a became a nurse, and you kind of found it wasn't for you. So you, you took a very brave decision in your mid twenties to to pack that in and you, you went to yeah. the big city.
1: So I, I would say that, um, for one thing, anybody, nursing is definitely in my DNA. I am a hybrid person because I loved nursing for all the great things that nursing gives you, the ability to help people. You know, at a very young age, I was dealing mm. with death and bereavement and communication skills that have stood to me the whole of my life. Been able to walk into a room and instinctively know if somebody's in pain or in need of a holding. Mm. Um But you don't go into nursing if you're ambitious or if you want to get on in life, because it doesn't actually nurture a questioning attitude, or it didn't at that time. Um, I took the plunge and started working for the Royal College of Nursing in London when I was uh, 23. And I was uh, in charge of all the student nurses. There were about 60,000 odd student nurses in the UK at the time. And because I was very raw and green, just having walked off a ward, they trained me within an inch of my life. I was trained um, on video. I was rolled out for all the television appearances. I had lowered the age of the professional staff in the Royal College of Nursing by about 30 or 40 years. They they were always known as the Twinset and Pearl Brigade. Not like that at all now, (laughs) but uh, I was this young thing that they thought they could use as a fresh image Mm. of nursing. So I managed to, you know, go off and train um, in public speaking, in um, television, in radio. And at the end of uh, about 18 months, I was fit for nothing. There I was sitting in an office and like a walking mannequin could talk uh, anything on any program. I was a regular on all the BBC and ITV programs. I was an adept at public speaking. um, But where was I going to go? I couldn't go back into uh into nursing i was now in london i had a secretary which i didn't know what to do with most of the time <laughs> good oh, wow. friend of mine okay. now uh and a car these were uh, i my i had tripled at, my at salary 20, to
0: 24 or so
1: is it 24 i was earning wow. ten thousand, which was that was literally oh, tripled my salary that's at amazing 10, money at that age so yeah um and i had a really good boss at the time a man He was a a a man who had become an arson was now head of the professional offices and he pulled me into the room one day and he said what are you going to do with your life and i said i have no idea and he said okay and he said what you're great at is is journalism you're writing for the guardian you're doing all this tv work why don't you do journalism and he was a fantastic at mentoring through that transition because i then lost the whole salary and the car Mm. and the secretary and went to Harlow to the National College of the Training of Journalists and literally went back to being an oily rag on the newsroom floor, back to being a student and and they called me a mature student at 24 Uh, but it was a great, like the the training programme was post-grad it was two years, I did all my court work and law work and public and central government and T-line shorthand nearly killed me. I must have sat that test about four or five times but eventually I got it at a Hundred words per minute which was the speed wow. so it, it was an, an interesting transition but I guess if there's another skill in my family it is journalism you know I have a brother yeah. who is uh, who's a producer was for many years owned his own film company I have a sister who's a journalist my father was a great writer so I think uh, probably found the right niche in my life then
0: so there was, so you didn't really get flack for the for the gear change there you didn't get didn't, didn't get any flack for that you got supported because it was in the family as well
1: yeah. And I think I did realize I didn't want to spend my life being a nurse. And, you know, I grew up in an era where it was, you know, work in the bank or work in yeah. service and get a job for life. And nursing was always a job for life. So I suddenly realized I had no job for life anymore. So yeah. I loved I did love journalism and I loved working on the newsroom. I'd say during my 20s, I rose very, very quickly. Um, For a couple of reasons. One, I very cleverly eventually went back into the world of medical and nursing journalism. So I had both qualifications, which was very unusual. Um, I also started to, although I loved writing, I I started to enjoy editing other people's work a little bit more, (laughs) that red pen out. And then eventually... I rose to editorial director, and before I was 30, I was CEO. Now, in the meantime, I went for two years to Ealing College to do TV production and direction, and I did radio with the BBC uh, with a great guy called Peter White who who produced Does He Take Sugar? He's, um, he's Blind. And uh, I had started my MPhil at the University of Wales. Now, so when I look at my 20s, I'm actually exhausted yeah, thinking I, of all the things I was
0: doing. It's an enormous <laughs> amount of fit into a decade.
1: Yeah, but the, the most important thing that defined me for the whole of my life was that decade because I actually had a very difficult marriage yeah. okay. and my husband was very abusive and uh, he was violent towards me and oh. I've spoken about that. He, he I met him when he was 40 and I was 23 and I married him at 26 and I stayed far too long in a very domestic abusive relationship um, and because of that I think my whole world was about staying out of the house as much as I could studying um, trying to gain a foothold on my own financial affairs and I honestly feel that the day I left him um, which was just after my 30s and my I turned my 30th birthday and I uh, I was probably two years trying to leave him with lots of false starts and you know clothes thrown out the window and um, lots of very difficult uh, behavior and then I just packed a bag one morning. I don't know why. I used to spend every Friday saying I'm going to leave him this weekend and every Monday crying all the way into work thinking, why didn't I leave him? Um, Mm. And I couldn't tell anybody in the workplace. And then one weekend I went home and my mother had noticed some odd behavior and she asked me and I told her. She was the only person I had told at that time. But I knew that because I told her, I would definitely have to leave him um because if I didn't you know she would tell my father and my brothers and it would be a huge family issue Mm. and I told my sister and after all these false starts this Friday morning I packed a small bag I had a speech (laughs) I still laugh about this because I wrote that speech about 50,000 times and you know I had rehearsed it in my head and what I was going to say and and I woke him up um I got up about three and I woke him up about 5.30 and started making my speech about why I was leaving him. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I was, you know, one slap too many, one broken rib too many. And then I could hear him snoring as I was oh. speaking. So I just went downstairs and he had, drove away in yeah. my little red car and I felt like I was going over the cliff. And... I spoke to my sister, I was reminding her the other day, my younger sister about that conversation and I said, do you remember that? And she said, I'll never forget it, it was like half five, quarter to six in the morning and I was effectively homeless, um, he owned everything, all of our finances, even my passport. I stayed at the IBIS at Heathrow Airport because it was the cheapest place to stay. But I did promise myself that day that I would never rely on anybody else, that I would stand on my own two feet. and." To be honest, the whole of the rest of my life, everything about me and the fact that I ended up, you know, owning businesses and investing in businesses is because of that. What are the chances of somebody like me who went to a desk school in Stony Batter? I'd never met a businesswoman in my whole life. I wouldn't have known even to say mm. I wanted to be a businesswoman. It's because of that adversity, um, very extreme overachievement in my work life and in my head and my education during my twenties, because I was escaping something which was very difficult. But uh, in many ways, it created all of the great things about my life because I was able to leave him. I wouldn't have met Richard. I wouldn't have had Dara. I wouldn't have owned Harmonia. I wouldn't have invested in other businesses. Mm. You know, so I, I definitely think that if this um, quality that I bought from that, it was that you know very strong sense of determination and resilience. Confidence took a little while longer. You don't, as a confident person, go into nursing. That's the truth. And you know, I gained confidence a bit because I was trained in so many ways to speak publicly, but um, but my inner confidence took a little bit longer after I left him, you know. But but the, so I always say to people, people always think, well, you were doing crazy stuff, but yeah, you know, it was a, a really difficult time for me personally. And, you know, I still, to this day, not only do I have some of the scars, but one very noticeable one on my face where he, he broke this bone here on one very vicious attack. And, you know, I, at the time when I'm at my happiest, you know, smiling, I noticed because it doesn't go up. It can't, just permanently damaged. I'm reminded of that, you know, so you have scars on the surface and you have scars inside you. But I would say overall, I am a very strong person because of that.
0: That's horrendous to hear. Uh, Is, is there anything you think you could do, have done differently? You know, because you were obviously quite independent in so many ways, but with somebody with a, Obviously, manipulative personality, somebody who was so confident in their position that they didn't even think you'd leave, you know? Is there anything you could have done differently looking back now?
1: Because it took me a while to talk about it. I spoke about it on the late, late, um, a few years ago. I've done a TED talk and, um, I work with a lot of, I have my own group of women who are uh, struggling with domestic abuse at the moment, but I also support the other charities. I learned an enormous amount. When I spoke first, I didn't know very much as to how did I end up in that situation? Why didn't I leave him sooner? Um, I I was a nurse and uh, funnily enough, a lot of women in, my particular fields are targeted by people who are domestic abusers subconsciously. I've no doubt, but people with empathy, um, who have a caring personality tend to be the ones that end up in these relationships straight after a bereavement. I was far away from the family. I was in London. I was quite isolated. I didn't have friends. He was very sophisticated. He was a big businessman. He only drove Porsches. He had a big business. Um, I ended up living in his house, of course, in his territory, his friends, um, very controlling almost from the beginning, you know, and, and I know all these things now, but when you're yeah. in your early 20s, I, I do spend a lot of time fundraising for young people young adults to recognize toxic relationships because before we got married he hit me for the first time and I thought it was just an aberration you know how could somebody who professes to love me and showers me with gifts which is another thing that is very noticeable amongst abusers um, how could you know he just said it was the stress of work and I believed him and you know and I think now were you crazy that you ended up marrying that man because if I knew then that the first slap was never going to be the last one I wouldn't have done that Uh, but But you'd be surprised, since I spoke about it, how many well-known people in public life, uh, both men and women, who were either the children of, siblings, victims of, survivors of um, domestic abuse. It's very prevalent. Toxic relationships don't always have to involve violence. Mine did. But it Mm. also had a lot of controlling behaviour. So, yeah, I've forgiven myself. When I look back with a lens of age, I say... The more important question I need to answer for people struggling in the same situation is how did I leave? Not why did I stay? Yes. And I spent a lot of time researching that, uh, talking to other women. Ray Darcy did a great show with me where we had a group of women who were also survivors, went through all sorts of legal hoops because I'm lucky that my first husband's dead. So, you know, he can't come after me legally or otherwise, you know.
0: So you can speak openly about it.
1: Yeah, and I think the people that, you know, were close to him support me. So, you know, there's not an issue. But um, since then, you know, there's various workplaces. For instance, um, Anna Leary announced last year that uh, Vodafone was going to make sure that they had somebody in HR that would be open to conversations, you know, recognising there isn't a workplace out there that doesn't have people who are going through difficulties in their relationships. Mm. I was conscious sitting on a late, late show. I said... You know it was a very difficult interview for me to do because i hadn't spoken about it before i had to tell some of my closest friends who didn't know about it um obviously talk to the family um my sisters and my mom obviously knew my brothers didn't and it was a hard conversation to have i think mm. they suspected but didn't know um and i said the only reason i'm doing it is because out there somebody's sitting on a couch um with a partner and they both know what I'm talking about is the reality of the situation, and if it gives that person the strength to get up and make a phone call and start the process of trying to leave that relationship, mm-hmm. then I'll have done something, you know.
0: And and especially with the the lockdown, the way it's been, that it must have been, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, multiplied, multiplied in terms of yeah. feeling trapped within that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but I know some great work has been done to 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 reach yeah. out to people, but never enough, I think. Uh, in you know, my
1: work life, Stephen. The reality is I never told anybody in the workplace, even the day I left him, I turned, I rocked up, and I was a significant leader of the teams at that time, and I had my coat on inside out, I didn't know whether I was coming or going, and I still got through those days. Um, In many ways, it was a respite for me and went home to sleep on the floor of somebody's flat or um, in one of those little hotels, I remember staying in one in um, Earl's Court as well. So. So for many months while my whole personal life was an abject turmoil, I had another persona in the workplace. You know, it taught me a great deal myself as a boss later in life about the importance of that stupid old fashioned idea that you leave your home life at home when you go into mm. the work we're not two different people we're all one no. human being you know so I've always been the kind of person who spends a lot of time talking to people that I can see are troubled or are going through some difficulties and I don't see that time wasted you know I'd work with other bosses who'd say oh my god she came in this morning and talked for two hours about her problems yeah. in her marriage and that's never time wasted you know you should always be there for your, be empathetic and be there for your team you know.
0: But you were you being highly successful I mean you didn't you, you didn't just uh, go through the glass ceiling you smashed it in terms of the age you were at which you broke through that glass ceiling into the the upper echelons of your industry yeah. at that time uh, and, I would you say, know, and you managed to hide uh, all that as well yeah. did, did anybody tune in to, to what was happening
1: no, my mum, my no. of course, because I told her before yeah. I left him and uh, my, my younger sister in particular, and they were great supports afterwards. I have a really good friend who's a nurse in Northern Ireland. In fact, she ended up helping me by uh, getting a flat that was owned by a friend of hers that I could use for a while until I got my feet together. Mm. Um, I think uh, afterwards, definitely, I reached out to some close friends and they were hugely supportive of me. And it was very difficult because when you leave somebody, it's the start of... The process of not going back. I mean, that was the big thing for me is that I just left this, you know. And I, I'm sorry to make it sound materialistic, but there's a practicality of your life as well. Absolutely, that, that, you yeah. know,
0: there's a financial I'd trap. Stayed, so, Yes. Yeah, yeah, so all my clothes
1: were there. Yeah. Everything was in that house and I had no money and I had no way of, you know, trying to get a deposit together and all of those things. So there was a huge temptation because he, of course, was phoning all day, every day, promising the earth, as he always did. You know, if you just come back to me, I'll change. I'll go for counselling and everything will be different from now onwards. So I really had to find the strength mm. within myself to stay away in all those horrible bed sits and sleeping at the end of the couch and everything else. I just had to keep saying to myself, no, you're not going back
0: yeah and and as you so as you were achieving to bring it back to the work workplace as you were achieving mm-hmm. that dealing with all that you were you were succeeding against the odds really you know I mean the BBC and everything even at the even now have had different issues fairly public issues in terms of pay and and opportunities yeah. for females in there but as I say you were you were smashing it did why why were you able to navigate that glass ceiling? How were you able to kind of really punch through that and, and get to where you were? What do you think was the secret sauce?
1: Yeah, which is a really great question. And that's the one that we need to ask every woman because for every woman that makes it, there's another nine that don't. So mm. that question is the most important. I would say in my 20s, I was driven so much by is, the escape. I had an inner determination to try and yeah. achieve things education was my foundation even though you wouldn't have found me being overly confident education you know I can't tell you how many different colleges and universities I was over in Wales during my M field transfer to PhD when I became a CEO first if, if you asked me what's the worst boss you met it was that person me <laughs> <as a> CEO <laughs> first, <laughs> because I was a terrible boss I was great at all sorts of skills that were required of a publishing business and it was a huge publishing business with a huge book imprint as well as a lot of peer-reviewed journals it's a lot of huge conference division it was a big medical company and I was the worst boss you'd ever meet I wanted to be friends with everybody I was trying to ignore the poor performers in case somebody called me out on it Um, they used to say because I was uh, from an editorial background very unusual to find somebody in a CEO position but they used to say the editor's indecision is final because I would spend (laughs) so long around the table is saying, and what do you think? And what do you think? I wouldn't make a decision for love no money. Yeah. So I had a very good female boss actually who nudged me towards why don't you go off and see all this education you're getting, why don't you go off and educate yourself and how to be a boss and it was the yeah. makings of me. I went to Ashridge Management College and they do a very great strategic management programme, still my number one skill. I did it for two years with very strong mentorship and you go in for three months, you're only allowed out the second Sunday I think and that's it. But you're working in real-time businesses it's a it's it's like an MBA it's a fantastic program but mine was all about strategy I was working on some work within our own business as part of the program and when I finished that I went back and did advanced strategic management so I can see quite far into the future (laughs) but I did I did love that that was the you know my shelves were groaning with files and theories and Unlike most people, I still use a lot of management models Mm. that worked really well for me at the time, bringing the team together. We were transitioning to a, a new world and a new venture. I probably launched and acquired far more um, businesses because of the confidence I had about my own abilities to do risk management, uh, risk assessment, to to work out all the strategic models that would give me the confidence to say I'm not walking in here blind. I know what the downside is. I know what the upside is. So they definitely, you know, if I was to say in my heart, I'm, I'm a nurse. <laughs> And I was driven during my 20s by my desire to accumulate as much knowledge as I could. And Mm. I never really wanted to be a boss, which I think somebody once said, ambition is the death of leadership. And I think that's true. I just wanted to do a great job. And, you know, I ended up being the person who was at the helm, but then only started the journey of learning how to do that
0: properly. Mm. And and do you think that the barrier, so education is actually, I think there's more females in third level education than there is males now. So do you think there? it's a different barrier now for female leaders?
1: Yeah, confidence, not competence, always. So, you know, when I meet young women, they have more qualifications probably than their male counterparts in the banker and, you know, the financial services companies. But they just can't make it because the entire culture sometimes is revolves around that kind of... Male buddying and networking, um, when it comes to putting their hand up, they don't put it up fast enough. Um, they they worry a great deal about, you know, there's loads of research behind this. My my site, Planet Woman, is based on all of the research behind those behavioral studies where women mm. don't go for the job, yeah. don't ask the salary. I mean, they've been replicated so often now they're they're hundred percent, you know, validated. Yeah. And um I think that when I see those behaviours and saw them in real life, I wondered why it was because sometimes it wasn't the organization and sometimes it wasn't society and it wasn't that they had children and they were juggling um home life and and work life it was something inside the woman herself you know this lack of confidence and um so that's really I I spend a lot of time working with women to try and there's a wonderful thing in your brain called plasticity Mm -hmm. so once you do something once you find it easier to do it again so you often find with women who are at the top of their game and their profession when I ask them the question you just asked me they'll say well, somebody, you know, really persuaded me hard to go for that job. I didn't want to go for it. And they ended up going for the job. And of course, the next job came easier. And they yeah. were then on the ladder towards, you know, a growth mindset and everything else that we love to hear about. But so many young women are lost between 23 and 33 because they don't feel they can hack it. They don't feel they can live in that world. And and if it feels like a different planet while they're single, once they um, become a parent, it feels oh. like a totally alien <laughs> world to them. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah absolutely.
0: <laughs> and, and for businesses, you know, a lot of big corporates as well, you know, yeah. once, once a baby comes along, they kind of go, oh, well, there's other priorities, you know, so we won't mm. trouble them with this or trouble them with that. So they're trying to, yeah. in a ways, they're trying to do a good, Thing, but it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: In, in many ways, the pandemic may be great for women. Yeah. It, it's not proven to be too great at the moment because I no. feel they're being airbrushed out of every conversation. But home working is something that would revolutionize a woman's ability to stay in the workplace and some recognition that there needs to be flexibility behind that. You know, obviously, I always say to people, it's work that's invading the home life at the moment, not the other way around. So you have to yeah. be very conscious of the fact that you can't have people on Zoom calls all day, every day. And you have to recognize that children need, you know, when they've been homeschooled and uh, they have to be fed and watered and played with you know Uh, but there's a reason why we have one of the highest levels of women in micro business in europe um, which are those very small almost lifestyle type businesses Mm -hmm. and when you ask those women why they're doing that it's because they culturally couldn't fit or there wasn't the flexibility in their workplace so they'll go out and be a part-time accountant or a florist or you know a life coach because it'll suit their family life they're not really yeah. setting it up as a business to you know as a high potential startup or export potential they're setting it up because it's an alternative life for them rather than trying to work within a corporate culture
0: but suddenly they, they go from potentially you know they're leaders now because once you start your own business you're a leader in the community in your local chamber you know so it's it's, it's funny you know where they might think they're taking a step out and away I actually would see they're yeah. taking a step up and in just a different yeah. door some just do a different I got
1: I think the difficulty for us, you know, I work, I mentor female founders all over the world. I work with Vital Voices. It was set up by Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright. So I became a global ambassador and I now sit on their European board. And my work with them means that I take on some women. I have a woman in Delhi, a uh, fantastic woman. That's who I'm talking to straight after you. Uh, I have a few in Africa. Um, I have a great woman from Ethiopia that's based in Brussels. I have some women here in Ireland. I've tried to get them involved in Vital Voices, great. It's a great program, great mentorship, um, very, very high-end learning materials. But, but microfinance initiatives are not the same thing as people who want to grow a business to employ people and they want to develop something which is could be a foundation for the next generation their family could be to uh to sell it on and their ambition is much bigger than just earning some money to to live and survive and doing the hours that are available to them so i think that's that that strategic
0: mind you're thinking of there
1: yeah it's more i think you know the reality of that is that it's um That's the cultural pain and that's what most corporates are trying to deal with at the moment is how do we keep these women in the workplace? How do we work with them? How do, do we make them feel like they're part of some, you know, during the pandemic, I'll be very honest with you. I have been sending off small, polite emails to people, and you will be surprised with the companies. Big, global giants who before have been talking about gender diversity, people that I have actually spoken to their teams and their staff about gender diversity. They're doing webinar and podcasts with all male panels all the time, especially when it comes to business and economics. I've watched so many television programs, and. It's not just me. I have a WhatsApp group with loads of women CEOs, and we're like, can you believe it? We have just watched nearly two hours of business and economics, and they have found a man to talk on every single thing. Yeah. So when I say women are being airbrushed out, when the chips are down and people are feeling a bit stressed or under pressure, they go back to the same old, same old. Let's find a man to do that, or I have a great database here, and I, I read an article in The Guardian. I would say The Guardian is one of the, you know, One of the newspapers I prided myself on being a reader of. (laughs) Yeah, it's Woke woke Central. Yeah, as I was was watching the Guardian. So because I've been doing work with women in sports, there was a great feature there about, I'm I'm going to tweet it out, so I'll wait till you do it. But, you know, it was called Sports Fans and What They Miss. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great because actually the number one, you know, sports fan for women in England is actually football. So I read it and I got to 23 men. 23 men talking about the sports they missed, what they loved, what they've learned about the pandemic, what they'd love to go back to, what they'd like to ditch. And the very final one was one woman who was slightly older, who spoke about how she missed the cricket and wheeling her father out to watch the cricket. And I thought oh, that's God. unbelievable. In the and that's Guardian. the
0: Guardian. Yeah, they just did I mean, a whole <laughs> The comment section must have been hilarious after. it. the only thing I don't I...
1: think so, because no. sometimes people just don't see it. I'm always saying I wish I could dole out gender specs so that people could yeah. before they put the photograph, before they do the feature, before they do the ad for the magazine. Just have a look at that in terms of gender diversity and see what four men outside a bank looks like it doesn't look good if you're a woman
0: yeah yeah if
1: if you go on you know there's a couple of uh, banks where you go on and if you're in the business side of the banking because i do a lot of business banking there's all men there talking on the phone and the photographs and it's like and then you do the home banking personal banking, it's all women holding babies yeah. and families and you're like okay the world isn't divided the unconscious too... stereotypes yeah. are still there yeah yeah
0: it's yeah. it's it, it's a funny thing when i was in the bank myself um i i went to a, a, a diversity and inclusion meeting and I found I was the only man there and I asked the question why am I the only man here you know yeah and everybody kind of looked at me and said no it's great that we have more women here and I went I don't think it is oh no you need more men. I, I think we've just <laughs> stopped the conversation if yeah because this is this will just be an echo chamber of everybody with the same view yeah. without bringing in the people maybe you know what I mean that that need to actually have their minds changed you know in, in a way like
1: I, sorry, but I think that's changed a bit. I mean, I know that um, most of the gender diversity uh, events that I've attended and spoken at for the last two or three years, there are, I won't say as many men, hmm. but definitely close on a third. You know, for International Women's Day this year, I did a big piece with Vital Voices here in Ireland and um, the president and the Taoiseach it with me. I went out of my way to bring in really strong male ambassadors to help mentor the young women that we were working on on that particular day. I spoke at a very big corporate um Uh, Actually, it was KPMG. And Mm. uh, when I turned up the room, I would say that was pretty close to 50-50, men and women. And, uh, you know, so I I see that changing a great deal. I think my only concern is the pandemic, certainly in terms of um, people's knee-jerk reaction to trying to do things. They've defaulted back to the old ways. A bit of regression,
0: yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it takes
1: a a great deal of thought, I think, to make sure that you are being balanced in your coverage, you know.
0: Yeah, look, I I suppose the the pandemic is a, uh, you know, we've never been here before, uh, definitely in our generation. So uh, we'll allow people a little bit of panic um, but, yeah. they, you know, I, I think if they stick to the good foundations that, that we're seeing them uh, right before, I mean, I, I think they can, they can see yeah. these things through. And apart from anything else, we're going to need great ideas. And it's been proven that great ideas come from diversity anyway. Um, it, so so that, that that's teams. where you get it yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah you know yeah. regardless it, it, you you obviously the, the magazine empire came from you actually doing a management buyout of a couple of magazines mm. here so you, you had been in london and and uh, you you met your husband richard and uh, he, he's the father of your son dara so i mean you know this was you you come into a kind of a clover <laughs> days when 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 it comes to this and what i was yeah. you know again to the home working thing uh, you worked with richard at that mm. time in the company. So you were, were working work, you were home, homing work, you you know, before anybody was doing homework and you, you're, you it was a family business without being a family business. It, exactly. You know, how did, how did that work? How did, did you set ground rules? Were you partners? Was there a clear boss? Good. Oh <laughs> there, there's a. will just fill in the gaps
1: quickly. Um, you know, I ended up working for Smurfit's and running three, um, stroke four of their companies across London and, and Dublin, London first. And, um, Richard worked for the BBC for 20 years. So, you know, he was very busy, uh, mm. always doing, he was a news correspondent. So, you know, he'd done Northern Ireland and Angola, but he was uh, he's sort of attached to the today programme on radio four and doing panorama news night. So, uh, so we'd taken a decision sort of, well, I was ro- just running London that Dara yeah. would go into a nursery and, um, then all of a sudden they said, will you start running Dublin? And naturally, I am Irish. I hadn't been back since I was 17. My father had passed away. Oh. I was very keen to take on Dublin. But I only saw it as something that I commuted to. You know, there was two yeah. companies here. So myself and Dara, at 18 months, we would commute every week to Dublin. And, you know, it was like 4 a.m. in the morning over to City Airport with the pram, the nappies, the fold-up cot, um, the briefcase. And Richard was drop us off for the 7 a.m. flight. And... I'd be over here dropping Dara into Lansdowne Lodge Nursery, still with the nappies in the briefcase. Mm. And we stayed here on Monday to Wednesday. Then I went back and ran the London company Wow! because Richard really didn't know if he was doing the six o'clock news or the nine o'clock news. So he couldn't pick up from from nursery. and our home life. It was the first time in our lives that we actually were under a degree of stress because I did it for. 18 months, uh, close on two years and something had to give. The Irish companies needed more of my attention. London was kind of running itself. So Richard took a sabbatical from the BBC, but we came back here and um, and we settled in for, we thought, a year. Like, we'll stay mm-hmm. a year, I'll sort everything out. And uh, anyway, he he worked for RTE for a while, then went back to working for BBC Science. He actually fell totally in love with the country. You know, he'd, right. he'd kind of grown up and the Channel Islands and Bermuda uh, with his, uh, his, his father was a typewriter mechanic, believe it or not, but they were the highly prized computer <laughs> technicians of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his mother was a teacher. So they were always in Channel Islands or Bermuda and back again. So he loved Dublin in a way that I didn't love Dublin. I did not like being back. Nice. I felt everybody was questioning me about who I was and who I was related <laughs> to. And they all thought that I had a micro knowledge of every nuance that happened in Ireland during my, you know, e Eid- oodles of years that I'd gone of course I I had no knowledge of you know Ireland and who was who and you know all the little nuances of politics and everything but and also everyone's very nosy you know and and business is very hard because they just wanted to talk for two hours and didn't want to do the business in London you just do the business and get out you know all the things I actually love now I hated in the first year (laughs) um but in the end I could see that I could do an MBO and um it, it, it's a great way, by the way, to 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 start your female founder journey because we had a failed MBO. Then um, it, it wasn't failed for any reason other than the business was in shock and rag order and was losing right. a ton of money and. Uh, we just withdrew for a, about a year. And it's not as if it was given to me, let me tell you. It was touted around everywhere, not just here, yeah, but everywhere yeah. else. <clears throat> so I really had to fight hard to buy it. And I took bank money, nice, clean money, unemotional money. I always say bank money is unemotional money. And, right. you know, never never borrow from friends, fools and family because it's very emotional money. we will be watching what you mm. buy and she got that new dress and she didn't pay me the dividend, you know. Yeah. But there's a real downside to unemotional money. If you don't make the loan repayments, you're out, you know, so... Yeah. I knew I was under a lot of pressure. And in my first year or two, I couldn't take any time off. And I had about five maternity leaves. That's just the yeah. nature of, I am a big employer of women. And yes, I always yeah. believe that you should fund maternity leaves. I can't believe how many high street retailers don't do that. Or how many reputable companies don't do it. But, you mm. know, I wanted to fund them, and some of them were gone for a good part of a year. Mm. And I had to then pay the, I hadn't budgeted for paying for all the replacements. So I was really struggling to get everything organized. And um, and I had loads of people working in editorial. I, I sort of decided I wouldn't bring in a team. And I was running the sales. I was running the contract publishing. I was running the editorial. So Richard said, look, I don't really want to go back to the BBC. I'll come in and do the editorial for a while. He's a great editorial person. And uh, he hates finance doesn't want anything to do with management, don't talk to him about strategy, no thank you. Uh, But the editors loved him. He loved the editors. He took a great um, delight in uh, Food & Wine magazine, in particular Ireland of the welcomes, which I'd bought from the government. It's an American magazine, beautiful cultural, artistic magazine. he started working in the contract publishing division was actually bringing in money because not because he was doing any hard sell I had to go in it to do the hard sell he would just charm the pants off them <laughs> so uh, I think anyone who knows Richard knows he was the loveliest man and the staff had adored him he stayed well away from me and the finance director didn't want anything mm. to do with us if I started talking about money or strategy he got scared he started putting his finger in his ear going ah this not <laughs> talking to me <laughs> so it worked so well because he didn't want anything to do with my area and to be honest with you I didn't want anything to do with his area I had enough on yeah. my plate so um yeah, we we very rarely when we come home in the evening, there's nothing like a young child to get you to sing Bob the Builder within five or ten minutes. So <laughs> yeah. uh, people always said it was that stressful. I said it was actually the greatest de-stressor on the planet that you didn't yes. bring your whole work stresses home because you were playing in the bath and singing and watching, you know, yeah. the pigs on television or whatever we were watching at the time. So we we and and we also. I kept loads of notebooks. They're actually sitting right next to me here, which had ideas in them. So I was always kind of everywhere I went in the world or, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, but ideas, stickers, they're like a little album of my life. You know, when I look through them, I'd put in a little piece from the paper or a seat or a drawing or something. And um, he's kind of a little bit like that. So we really valued our downtime because we would sit and dream of all the things we wanted to achieve. Like we were talking about podcasts way before, podcasts became a thing. Because he he was a radio man, television and radio, but radio was his love, you know.
0: Yeah. So it worked.
1: Really worked well for us. We were we were a dream team.
0: because you had your separate territory and 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 and, yeah. and every, everybody stuck to that. Yeah. And that that's around the time the Dragon's Den came knocking then when you got back to Ireland and 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 everything yeah. was set up magazine wise and and next thing you get a call to be uh to be one of the dragons making or breaking mm. the businesses of the future uh live on yeah. television. What was that like?
1: And uh, yeah, weird because I I lived in television and radio in my 20s. Like yeah. I I presented for the BBC, LBC had a program on LBC. I was working in Sky at the weekends. So Everybody knew that about me, but you come back to Ireland, and it's like as though if you haven't done it in Ireland, it really doesn't count, you know? Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> all people knew me was that, that, that woman who bought the magazine yeah. company, you know? Have you, so not then... been,
0: have you not been to RTE? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was doing some commentary on business women stuff and things like that. Anyway, um, I was delighted to get the call to do it. I, I thought about it a great deal, but at that time, I had inherited a business that was like losing, I think, the year before I took it on, close on 3 million. And at that point, I was on cumulative profits of 1.6 million. So um, within three years, I'd kind of transformed the business I was acquiring. I was growing, and I was very keen to expand very quickly. I had my sights set on, I I knew publishing in London far better than Dublin. So I had my sights set on launching. I did launch into London. And we were heading off down to Australia to get some uh, licences on some of the, in, particularly interiors and food titles. Not for Ireland, with its no. 3.5 million. Yeah. The 60 yeah. million across the water from me, you know. It's the big Marcus, so, Yeah. I was hugely ambitious, and I and I had tended to, I never took a dividend out of my business ever. Like I don't nice. have a big lifestyle. I don't have any great um, fancy hobbies. I you know, drive a bug standard car. I don't, I just don't have, so I was always investing in other things, but the things I was investing in tended to be things like my own business. And Mm. I kind of knew that wasn't necessarily a great thing. So what Dragon's Den gave me was, um, the opportunity to sit in an armchair and, you know, get 50 or 60 people in who presented businesses, everything from engineering to chimney sweeps, you know, Mm. and it was a, it was a great broadening of my mind around, um, the potential for businesses that I could invest in that were different to me, primarily, Um, but I also taught a, a very important lesson that it's not really the business it's the person you know i think right. the, the enduring compelling format of dragon's den is there's an armchair entrepreneur in all of us and i can almost hear them sitting on the sofa saying why did you invest in that why didn't you <laughs> invest in that he was mad yeah. so, um but the reality is at the end of the day it's never the idea dragon's den is based on the idea and the big reveal of the idea and what the idea is going to be and um in fact it's nothing to do with the idea it's a hundred percent to do with the person so nice. i would have had more funny but more fun putting my money down uh, a toilet, frankly, than some of the investments I made. Um, Thankfully, I did make some great ones and still have some that are tremendous and great. Um, But yeah, it was really weird for me. You could be on air in in Britain the whole of your life and people would say, I vaguely know your face. Now, my husband was on television in Britain all day, every day from the age of 23 till, you know, 40 Five forty-six, and people say I think I know you, I'm Richard Hannaford Oh, f- should I listen to you in the morning? I saw <laughs> you on Panorama, but, you know, it would be a vague recognition
0: Yeah, yeah, they could have met him at a down. party <laughs>
1: couple of weeks and people were ah Stopping I'm out I one yeah. from Dragon's Den I was like yeah. how did this happen like overnight suddenly everybody in the country knows who you are you know yeah so yeah. That, was, that was a bit strange but yeah I, I did love Dragon's Den I, I left it after Richard died and uh, I think because a lot of my investments as much as people want money and of course they do they also want a lot of your time and energy and I didn't really I, I felt it was slightly immoral to offer mm. that when I didn't have enough for myself you know.
0: Yeah, it it it's very much a mentorship they're they're looking for in in that. I mean, yeah. the great idea and enthusiasm will get you so far, but but knowing how to navigate business and and actually that strategic mindset—how do I grow? How do I? What what's mm. the pitfalls? You know, those things are are really important. Uh, do you yeah. think you knew when people walked in, yes or no, based on 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 their pitch? Do you think you went, no, this is not going to work out, not because of the idea, but this person's not, they're not there.
1: No, you can't tell what the other person is like. Firstly, they're rehearsed within an inch of their lives. Right. Um, I, I have to say, and I'm not doing a disservice to any of them, but they inflate their figures they tell you the good side but not the downside i mean i I brought in a lot of due diligence to some of the people who came into the den that they had to fill out before they left because i was finding there'd be an errant husband who owned half the business that nobody was mentioning and you know or a a, a peeved uncle that you know had been given a loan and hasn't Mm. been paid back or a a trademark that was promised that they had that they didn't have so i think Mm. that's just the reality of entertainment shows like that Mm. at the end of the day that is an entertainment show and you're getting one side of a person when they walk into the den and you really only get to know them when you work alongside them
0: yeah yeah and and then uh, you just mentioned it there richard passed away he, he had a a short battle with cancer uh that 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 was a huge blow for you ano- another yeah. one of these things kind of out, outside of your control you know a, a, through through your life you've made all these big decisions but this was one you couldn't it wasn't a decision for you to make how did you how did you go on how did you care for yourself
1: um, it it definitely devastated me you know i told you um if i was to think of the days that changed my life um, the defining one was the day i left my first husband but you know the one that devastated me was the day richard died and as you say he was 48 at the time um he was very fit and well before that in fact you know we were out partying the night before he got ill Mm. And it seemed to come out of nowhere. And within a few months, you know, his cancer had seeped into his spinal cord and uh, it started in his kidney. And we thought it was just take the kidney out and do chemo. But Mm. within a few weeks, they found three more in his liver and then his spine. And then they decided to do radiotherapy on his spine to try and um, keep the tumor from his spinal cord, but inadvertently cracked his spinal cord. So within four weeks of diagnosis, he was in a wheelchair. Um, oh and we had no luck. Like, you know, we had just a, sh- a few short months. Um, Dara was 12 at the time, um, a roller coaster of crap. Is the only way to put yeah. it. Every time we went for scans, his uh, cancer had progressed. He was on very strong um, chemotherapy, but he couldn't tolerate it a lot. His consultant kept saying, there are people who could go on holiday, uh, Richard, for two weeks and their cancer wouldn't progress. And we're giving you toxic yes. chemotherapy and yeah. their cancer is progressing. So... Pretty soon, around about the August, um, when they found it in his lungs, they said, like, pack your bags and, you know, um, sort your affairs out. I, we did struggle oh. on for a little bit with John Crown, and he actually went into the hospice to get his pain because bone cancer is very sore and hard to control. So he went mm. in to get his bone pain under control, but he got pneumonia very quickly. He was very, very sick when he went in, but t- I, I can't tell you why i was floored by his death i thought that we'd have a little bit more time and mm. then suddenly the nurse was telling me you know he's very sick i was saying i know he's sick like he's cancer everywhere but you know she was saying he's really sick and um a couple of days before he died dara was in with me and um the consultant paul gregan there said you know i think it would be a good idea for us to talk to dara you and and richard and and uh, Richard didn't want to take part in the conversation so oh. myself and Dara went into the side room with them and he drew this I remember him drawing this body and he was saying to Dara now let me show you where dad's cancer is and you'd be hard-pressed to find any area of the body that didn't have cancer and Dara was watching the whole thing and um, and then he just looked at Paul mm. Gregan and said is my dad dying and I nearly fell off the chair because I would never have had the courage to ask that question. He was only 12. And Paul Bregan, he was only 12. And Paul Gregan oh, said, yes, Dara, your dad is dying. And he said, and when is he going to die? And he said, he's going to die in the next day or two. And that's how I found out. And that's, that's... how Dara found out. And actually, that's how Richard found out. Because Paul Gregan said, now, ethically, I have to go in and talk to your dad, Dara. And Dara was at this point beside himself with grief, of course. Mm. And Richard told me afterwards that when he walked in, he asked him, did Dara ask the hard question? And Paul said, yes. And he said, and what did you tell him? And he said, I told him in the next day or two. But in many ways, it was a gift because... When Darren and I went back into his room, we'd never really talked about death. I did a TV program with RTE about yeah. death and um, dying with dignity just because I, we didn't have that conversation for very long. But we did have it. And it was just after that chat. And he was able to say to Dar all the things he wanted to say, which is like, it's funny. These kind of things are so important afterwards that he remembers his dad saying yeah. that yeah. about his life and all the things that he wanted to be there for him and what he wished for him. And then as soon as we were finished, Richard loved poetry. So he used to read poetry to Dara and literature. And then in the latter stages, um, Dara was reading to him. So he said, Dara, it's get lovely. the book out now and, yeah. and read to me. And we never talked again until he died. So I, yeah. what can I say? I, you know, For somebody who spent their life, I guess, in my business life, looking at strategy and looking to the future, I, as much as... People were saying I feel Richard around me. All I could feel was a big gaping hole. And Mm. and when you're bereaved and grief-stricken like that, it's very difficult to see a future because my future was totally bound up with, you know, late night bottles of wine with Richard of all the things we were going to do and how we were going to, um, you know, maybe fulfil all these dreams that we had all these years. And Dar was getting to an age when you know he was going to secondary school and we could be a bit freer. So. I actually couldn't see any future at all other than I knew I had to get my child to school every day and I was going into the company and I was with a lot of grief-stricken people there who loved him. I was picking up emails that had started with Richard. And I'm picking up the email thread and he was ever present. I definitely was the kind of boss, if you ask people in harmonia, <laughs> you'd know I arrived when I walked in the front door because I'd be talking to everybody all at once and sitting yeah. on everyone's desk and what are you up to and what can I do? Lots of banter. I just went up, closed the door of my office and prayed nobody go near me. I didn't want to be in any room. I didn't want to be the queen at any table. I didn't want to be yeah. the chair. I didn't want anything. So I think I knew something had to change. And I went walking in uh, Wicklow. Um, We rented a house for a few months, myself and Dara. And I don't know, there was something nice about lifelong love of walking now because um, just walking in nature, um, maybe just the roteness of putting one foot in front of the other, release my head a little bit and, um, And then TV3 asked me to step in for Vincent Brown, which was about the stupidest decision I think I ever took, but the best, too. I remember (laughs) saying yes. And my mother's going, I can't get a sentence out of you for the last few months. What are you doing going on, Vincent? Being Vincent Brown, not sitting across from him. I don't know what I was thinking, but I do remember driving up from Wicklow and pulling into Ballymount Mountain to the TV3 car park and looking up at the sign and thinking, holy, I won't say an expletive, what are you doing here? Mm. I, she was right. I couldn't have a conversation with anyone. I had no sentences in my head. And there's a producer inside who I sort of got to know very well afterwards. She said, are you all right? And I said, yes. And I threw up in the bathroom. And she, It was on the fiscal treaty and Michael Noonan and all sorts of, you know, really heavyweight people were on. And there was this pile of research in the boardroom and she said, how are you getting on? And I, it was like slithering <laughs> out of my brain as soon as I read it. And like I said, great. And just to fool her, I would take a little bit off the pile and put it next to me. Even though I'd read it. I was in and out of the toilet, throwing up all day. And then I don't know, maybe it's something like riding a bike. You know, I'm in the studio. I've said hello to everyone. I have the biggest red rash going down my neck. Uh, my mouth is dry. I can't tell you every symptom, heart hammering. And in my earphone, I can hear the floor manager saying, oh, it's 30 seconds to air and the music's going on and the auto cues in front of me, which looks like a blur, by the way. Yeah. But somehow or other, I got into it. And, you know, I, I hardly remember the time flying until I heard him in my ear saying 30 seconds, 10 seconds. And we were out and I was Oh my God, that's like the biggest roller coaster I've ever been on, mm. and I couldn't shut up on the way home. I phoned my mother all the way home. And goes, Lan, did you hear him? Or did you hear what I said back to him? Or did you hear that question? Do you remember that? But I said, Oh my God, you're on fire. I the, haven't the had dam
0: a, broke then. Yeah, I
1: haven't even had a sentence out of you. I kind of realised something really important that even if your personal life is in a mess, that's one part of your brain you can get a big fire up about something, you know, which is yeah. to do with. My, my whole default position always is work or education or learning new things when my personal life's not great. So I went back in the next night and stood in for him. And then um, they asked me to do, I was doing a pilot program called The Takeover. I ended up doing 13 episodes of that. Mm. Then they asked me to try out to replace Ivan Yates on News Talk. I took over from him for a year, got up at 4 a.m., five days a week. And then they said, Do you want to present RTE Cork on a Friday afternoon at Blondetney Coffee? Sure, I'm your woman. Mm-hmm. I had an out work taxi driver driving me down um, so I could sleep in the back and get lashes on before I went on air. And <laughs> Oliver Cannon, I remember telling a joke at the time saying, There's loads of jobs in Ireland, it's just Nora Casey has them all. So
0: <laughs> Prolific, I did do yeah.
1: my media miles for three years and I loved it because I was just standing on my own two feet. It wasn't my job if the sound engineer didn't turn up. Um, I wasn't yeah. the boss of that yeah. other than myself and my head and my brain and my my mouth and my intellect and uh, it was fantastic for me I realized of course at the end of that cra- I wrote a book in the middle of it all like I mean mm. I kind of still it, it's a bit like my 20s it's all a bit of a blur I I, I have no idea how I did all those things there's and possibly said a, just...
0: possibly a connection between stress yeah. and hyperactivity with you <laughs>
1: I think I thought the you know, the hours would run out in the middle of the night if I didn't achieve everything I wanted to yeah. achieve. And I, I just had a very painful um, lesson in how, yeah. you know, people like Richard don't get to achieve everything they want to achieve in life. Mm. So I thought, oh, geez, my moral imprimatur now is to be to go out and do everything that I day. should. So I, I did come off all of that eventually and think, OK, that's mad. I can't do all of those things. And I took on the Sunday show with News Talk, which suited me better. Yeah. And I started working on a documentary with young women from the traveler community. Yes,
0: brilliant um, series. Which,
1: which I really loved doing. Yeah. yeah. And I, I did Death with Dignity, um, which I loved doing. I went back and spoke to Paul Gregan. Um, in Blackwood. that was my first time back there. It was a really important thing for me to do. I started talking to, I must have talked to twelve or fourteen people who are within the end stages of life, about how they mm. felt. It was such a privilege, not one of them are alive still. But, you know, I talked to them. I talked to them about their living wills. I talked to people about the importance of, um, of dying and where you die. Marion Finucane took part in the program. Gabriel Byrne did. Um, it was, it was a real great cathartic experience for me to author it as somebody who's been on that journey
0: you mm. know it, it's it's um, it's a great way to to turn the the huge negative into a positive as well yeah. a- again that that learning you know no more yeah. than the domestic violence you've taken yeah. your negative turned it into the positive the grief you've taken exactly. your negative turned yeah. it into the positive you know so it's it's and yeah. and that and this is the thing you know you don't the quiet life isn't for you for sure Um, you know whether it be books or documentaries or speaking or setting up planet women or what I what I noticed was that this period of your life just seems to be full of giving just full of giving of yourself Uh, and and the list of initiatives we've just seen there it's just huge you know your even your website as I say everybody should go on because it's like a management book you've just you've given away a load of advice for free I mean you People would have to pay thousands for that to, to, to do a coaching session with you. But you're just giving it away. Yeah. Crazy. You the, need the, <laughs> It's, yeah, it's my, amazing, you, you know?
1: You're, you're now sounding exactly like my brother who spends the end of every week. he well, you're busy this week. I was a flat artist. And I said, is any of that paid for? Yeah. No. I mean, I, I think after I, I eventually you know, sold a, the a big chunk of the business, most of it to an American company. And I just finished the non-compete there at the uh, beginning of this year. So it was two years. And um, that was a huge decision. I didn't want to let go of my babies. I felt they were my mm. babies, all those. Uh, but I, I also feel that was a big moment of transition for me. And then I went off dancing with the stars for a while, which is yeah. fantastic. And I love that. It was a, a great way to get from one bit of your life to another, to be yeah, prancing yeah. around the studio. with Curtis mad. Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think now um, I'm in that zone. I, I, I decided I would do one year pro bono. Anyway, 100% nice. pro bono, okay. not, just, not just partially. And I worked on the Magdalene Women's Reunion. I was an ambassador for that. It took over my life for about six months. It's still taken over my life, actually. Um, I did things in the domestic violence area that I always wanted to do. I, I always leaned towards um, homelessness and, you know, work with Focus Ireland. Um, I wanted to really that year for international women's day you know the the truth is as much as i love women and i want to support them on international women's day it tends to be a lot of well well got women talking to well got women about things mm. they already know about yeah so i did an event for young girls um and Brilliant. we brought older women there to act as mentors uh, as you say sometimes school leavers sometimes graduates young graduates i did an event for homeless women and women who are socially disadvantaged in the mansion house arm wrestled the lord mayor to do that with me Uh, again a whole group of really well-known women came and helped me out with that so i wanted to do different things that year and um and it was fantastic and i haven't it's kind of addictive now i haven't got out Mm -hmm. of it you know i i started working more i virtually work full-time for vital voices you know um i start off every morning talking to one corner of the world with somebody who's struggling with their business and since the pandemic it's like in the early stages dealing with people who are grief-stricken all the way through to people who are um dealing with some of the things your podcast deal with you know i think as a leader there's issues around you know um letting go of people that you feel very close to furloughing Mm. staff um uh, there's one leader I was trying to to work with this morning, and somebody in a competitive pace, in, instead of acting collegiately with her, is trying to poach her staff as they come out oh, of the pandemic. Okay. You know, I mean, I said that's just a lesson in values and ethics. You know, yeah. because you meet these people, it's happened to me, and uh, you just have to phone them up mm. and stop trying to hide behind it. You just have to have the confidence to pick up the phone and say, "Yeah, what's going on? Why are you trying to poach my staff?" Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I think that the one thing I would say about um, giving back, it takes a lot of people a lifetime to understand that it's far more rewarding than taking. Yeah. And as much as um, I give away money as much as I can, um, I think giving my time has been far more valuable mm-hmm. because um, money is a one off and it's non recurring usually. Whereas when I take on, I try to take on things within defined area so in the early days every time somebody said can you help me i tried to help them but and then realized i was like a scattergun approach Hmm. so now i try to work in the areas that i know that i want to focus on and uh, that's been much more rewarding like so even in the area of grief um you know having the experience of richard dying and you know it's very rewarding to be out in the streets and doing hugs back in the day when we could yeah. with people who've lost people and um the letters that i get and then i did the ted talk on grief um which is called the cure for grief uh, as you know i'm a total geek i spent my whole life having published peer-reviewed journals and you know doing my own research um i i tend to lean not towards the heart but onto the brain and science mm. so the cure for grief is actually based on that real idea of movement, you know, when you when you go through very extreme grief. And, you know, I've written about it, I've spoken about it, I've did the television program about it. So domestic violence is the same, you know, I I, and I wrote the book about uh, grief. Um, Now I've kind of did the talk, you know, I've done the fundraising, I've been working in particular areas, especially with young people, um, taking on a small group myself, uh, which is private. And, you know, I, I just try and see if I can finish something and make it more rounded rather than just slipping yeah. in and out
0: of it. it. It's fantastic work that you're doing now and, you know, covers so many things. And I, and I know I just encourage people to go onto the website and have a look at, at, at what you're Thank doing, you. because there's going to be something that will, will resonate with them. That's all I'd say. The st- I'd say that
1: the, the, the one thing, Stephen, I'd say just before we go, I realize I'm in Delhi in yeah. five minutes, that <laughs> um, the... the Around about the time of Dragon's Den, when I was going through a very steep learning curve about learning about other businesses and investments and people and the journey towards starting successfully, starting a business successfully, I started a business clinic and I used to see people for 30 minutes from 8 o'clock till 6.30 at night and then if they were way useful... I'd do an hour with them the next visit. So
0: yeah,
1: I think, I, I you know, if you look at um, Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, Outliers, The 10,000 yeah, Hours, book. I, I probably have done, you know, quadruple that in terms of the hours I spent with people on business and startup and the various parts of the journey. And I honed during that time the subject of the next book, which is these 10 steps to startup success, um, mm. which I haven't, you know, I've done the videos. They're up on YouTube. The, I did the post because I was doing a, a webinar with Tanzania on Friday Day and I reposted the startup steps um, very simple. But if you miss one, you're not going to, you know, you're right, really so. not going to make it, you know. And the idea behind that is, you know, very few people understand that the idea is the first step. Yeah. And the funding is the last. So normally people come to me and they haven't done any of the nine steps in between. So I have a great idea. Would you like to fund me? I haven't told anybody before in my life. That's the kiss of death for me. I've yeah. never told anybody, I'm saving it for you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh give me a call and I'll cut you in on the deal. And you're like, Okay, have you done the other nine steps? The proof of yeah. concept, the competitor analysis, you know? <laughs> no. Haven't done but any this, of those. this is this <laughs> is
0: your this is the education piece. This is why this the strategy that the you know, you've y I think you know, talking to you now, you've got two skills, actually. You've got the education behind you, the models, you know, you know those steps, but you're also a great storyteller and you can tell people and convey that. I think that would be the key. I think your mentorship has those two little uh, sweet spots in it. You know, you're able to tell that story as well. Some people have the knowledge, but they can't tell the story. Just before we go, if you could summarize leadership What's the secret of leadership, if you could go, go in, and, and sum it all up in one?
1: Oh my goodness, uh, that is such a hard thing to do. I, I The one thing about leadership that I've learned is it doesn't always come from positives. I, I, I became yeah. a better leader because of adversity. And... Uh, during the pandemic I think that people who have had this kind of adversity in their lives have been better leaders they're not you know I've seen leaders struggle because they're great planners and they want everything controlled and then suddenly this yeah. big side swipe comes along and they're like all over the place whereas people who have had some side swipes in their life have actually um worked much better if I was to say if I look back on the bad bosses and good bosses in my life um values and ethics are very important to me have an empathy with your staff you know um Definitely walking the talk and being a good role model for people. The most important thing that happened to me thereafter is um, I, I had, I have a lifelong intolerance of bullying and people who try and, and, by the way, I've worked with two bosses who spent their life intimidating people, had their favorites, had their pets, divided the staff and mm. um, did all of the terrible things. You know, people leave their bosses, not their jobs, by the way. And so, I'm the one who's lost business, who's lost promotion because I called them out on it, you know. And I remember a few years ago, somebody witnessing me and, you know, a, a, they thought a really embarrassing situation, which was around a dinner table when somebody was throwing their weight around, bullying, and putting people down. And I called them out on it. Mm. And she said to me afterwards, you're some dragon. I said, you know, what? <laughs> that's nothing to do with me being a dragon. That's my survivor. Yeah. instincts yeah. you know I recognize that behavior and and I don't feel that I need to tolerate it and I don't think anyone else should either yeah. so leaders come from all sorts of different places and we bring all sorts of different skills but that's yeah. my lot
0: values and ethics absolutely Nora this has been an absolute pleasure and you've been so generous thanks with your it. time uh, it's been brilliant so thank you very much for being on the podcast thanks and for having me we'll, we'll talk to you soon thank you I believe Nora Casey is a great example to leaders of how compassion and hard-nosed business decisions can coexist. I really would recommend a visit to her website and a look at her TED Talk on the cure for grief. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us the greatest favor and share it with all your friends and colleagues. Thank you to all the people who gave us a five-star review on iTunes. That is amazing. And if you want to contact the podcast, drop me a mail at stephen at stephennaughton.com. You can find more from me on Instagram at Good Boss Bad Boss Podcast, and I promise I'll be back next month with another Good Boss Bad Boss guest. Until then, goodbye.